Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Expert Answers to Common Questions for Advancing the Standard of Care for Relapsed or Refractory Follicular Lymphoma, is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from Celgene Corporation, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Insight Corporation, and Veristem Oncology. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity titled, Expert Answers to Common Questions for Advancing the Standard of Care for Relapsed Refractory Follicular Lymphoma. I'm Dr. Ajay Gopal, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at the University of Washington, as well as a member of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center Clinical Research Division. I'm also the Clinical Research and Associate Medical Director of Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance in Seattle, Washington. Uh, this is a disclaimer indicating that there may be some unlabeled use discussed. And here are my conflicts of interest financial disclosure statement. These are the learning objectives that we hope to cover today. So as part of this activity, we reviewed the frequently asked questions. As you can see on the left-hand figure here, most questions, or 79%, were related to treatment options for patients with relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma, with other topics being much less frequent. Within this category of treatment-related questions, they span a variety of areas, including PI3 kinase inhibitors, first-line treatment options, chemoimmunotherapy, combination therapy, general treatment questions, questions regarding immune checkpoint inhibitors, specific questions regarding obinutuzumab and transplant, as well as general guidelines on treatment selection. We're going to cover a number of these today uh, to try to address some of the more frequent or interesting questions that were brought up during this activity. These are the questions that I will be uh, covering. Number one, is there a way to predict who will have an early relapse after upfront chemoimmunotherapy? Secondly, in patients who experience autoimmune complications related to PI3 kinase inhibitors, is there any evidence of immune-mediated augmentation of their response? A third question includes, when would you consider autologous transplant for patients with relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma? In the third line, in the fourth line? And finally, are there any data on PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors in follicular lymphoma? So let's start with the first question. Is there a way to predict who will relapse early after upfront chemoimmunotherapy? The first take-home point here really is that, as we know, the current prognostic models are imprecise. There are a variety of models which are somewhat useful for predicting outcome, but not as useful for predicting which patients will suffer early relapse. There's the FLIPI, the FLIPI-2, the PRIMA-FLIPI, and the M7-FLIPI, which includes a molecular profile of a patient's tumor. Unfortunately, these are not accurate uh, and reliable for predicting early relapse. Specifically, uh, data from clinical trials suggest, really not surprisingly, that those who have a PET-positive uh, end-of-treatment scan that uh, is FDG-AVID uh, are at higher risk for relapse, and these are data from the PRIMA trial with chemoimmunotherapy with or without rituximab maintenance. However, I think most of us would recognize that a positive PET scan uh, is not a favorable outcome, uh, but we really wanna know prior to that, 
and it's particularly in our patients that don't have positive PET scans who might be at higher risk of relapse. Data from the British Columbia Cancer Agency uh, includes uh, a variety of patients uh, treated with bendamustine and rituximab. They were able to show that, importantly, the majority of those that had early relapse had transformed disease. So 76% of the patients that had early relapse uh, were able to be demonstrated to have disease transformation. They also showed that only baseline elevated LDH was associated with early progression of disease by 24 months. This may not be a surprise because many of these patients may have had occult transformation at the time of their diagnosis and were probably inadequately treated with bendamustine and rituximab. Nevertheless, an elevated LDH may be useful when using a bendamustine rituximab regimen uh, to uh, predict for early relapse. However, this also may prompt one to search for transformation and treat them with an anthracycline-based approach if this is found. More recently, a group looked at two prospective trials to try to sort out a scoring system that could identify patients that were at early risk of relapse. This is the so-called FLEX index, Follicular Lymphoma Evaluation Index. These were uh, in a discovery set from the Gallium trial. This is a trial of chemoimmunotherapy, either uh, comparing obinutuzumab with rituximab plus chemotherapy. And they identified nine adverse factors, some of which are quite difficult to test on a routine basis, but many are fairly straightforward. These included male sex, uh, bulky disease, uh, over seven centimeters, histologic grade 3A, greater than two extranodal sites, an ECOG performance status greater than one, anemia of a, with a hemoglobin less than 12, and elevated beta-2 microglobulin. And for number eight here, peripheral blood natural killer cell count less than 100. This is not a routine test at most centers. And an elevated LDH, again, falling out as a factor. They then uh, uh, conglomerated these into a risk score and defined low-risk patients as zero to two factors uh, with a 91% two-year progression-free survival or a 9% risk of early progression, and those with three to nine factors with a 26% uh, risk of early progression. This was validated in the Sabrina trial, which evaluated uh, subcutaneous uh, rituximab. This is shown graphically here, uh, the differentiation on, in the left-hand panel uh, between the uh, low-risk and the high-risk patients. And though there is some differentiation between the groups, there is still, the, even in the high-risk group, most patients still do well. So it's probably, it's not likely the most uh, useful predictor to say that patients are more likely to have uh, an early relapse than not, uh, though it does help potentially identify patients uh, that are at higher risk uh, for this uh, occurrence. The challenge, of course, is uh, that one of the factors is non-standard. The right-hand panel shows various outcomes with different uh, chemotherapy backbone regimens. Okay, let's move on to the second question. In patients who experience autoimmune complications related to PI3 kinase inhibitors, is there any evidence of immune-mediated augmentation of their response? So this is really a clever question brought up by a number of participants. Uh, we do know that in addition to the direct B-cell receptor signaling pathway inhibition that occurs with PI3 kinase inhibitors, 
Preclinical data also suggests that PI3K inhibition reduces regulatory T cells and potentially reduces myeloid-derived suppressor cells. We also know clinically some of the toxicity appears to be autoimmune, such as colitis, hepatitis, pneumonitis, um, hyperglycemia and hypertension may uh, be through a, a different mechanism of action. We also know that patients that have less prior therapy are at higher risk of toxicity such as hepatitis. We also know from PD-1 inhibition that patients that have immune-related adverse events tend to have higher response rate. So the uh, participants hypothesize that potentially this toxicity could be associated with a favorable response. Well, there are very little data in this area. Uh, we and others uh, presented this retrospective analysis of prospective trials using idelalisib at the EHA 2020 meeting. Uh, Dr. Wagner Johnston uh, was the lead author on this abstract, and we looked retrospectively at patients with these supposed autoimmune complications of ele elevated uh, transaminases and colitis. And with many caveats of a retrospective uh, non-preplanned analysis, there did appear to be at least a numerical association of higher response rates in those that had, for example, elevated AST-ALT, 89% versus 51%, duration of response, 37 versus 11, and 39 versus nine months in terms of progression-free survival, with the latter two being uh, non-significantly, statistically significant. There was also a non-statistically significant association of grade three colitis with improved overall response rate and progression-free survival. So these are very uh, uh, provocative, but very limited data with many caveats. Uh, and there are many ongoing prospective studies looking at taking advantage of this uh, immune-mediated uh, pathway of PI3 kinase inhibitors uh, in combination with other agents. Let's now turn to the third question. When would you consider autologous transplant for patients with relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma? Well, why would you consider an autologous transplant? And these are some of the potential reasons. One is it's a relatively short duration of treatment, uh, six to eight weeks, one can be uh, through the acute uh, period. Uh, and this may be in comparison to months and months and months of ongoing oral therapy. Many patients can enjoy long remissions off treatment of five plus years. Nowadays, the treatment-related mortality is really quite low on the order of one to 2%. And compared to many expensive regimens that are ongoing for many months to years, it's relatively cost-effective, around $100,000. The other uh, important point here is that this also treats occult transformation, which is often an issue in patients, as I showed you earlier, with early relapse. So high-dose therapy and autologous transplant can be useful if one is suspecting that there was occult transformation to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So which patients tend to do better uh, with autotransplant? Uh, this is a series uh, some years ago from our center where we looked at the FLIPI score, uh, Follicular Lymphoma International Prognostic Index, and no surprise, those that had a lower FLIPI score, zero to one or two, did much better than those that had a higher uh, FLIPI score. Uh, we also showed, again, not surprisingly, that chemosensitive disease uh, did better, and this is really a prerequisite uh, for going to autotransplant to have responsive, chemo-responsive disease. Other groups have also uh, looked at predictors for outcome after autotransplant. This is from the Nebraska group, uh, looking at the number of prior lines of therapy. And for those that have had one or two prior lines, the outcome appeared to be better than those that had three or more prior lines of therapy. 
More recently, the CIBMTR tried to tease out this group of early relapse and try to figure out what was autotransplant beneficial in this population. So uh, this, these were patients that had either less than a partial response after frontline chemoimmunotherapy or had progressive disease within two years. They compared those that went on to autotransplant versus uh, that did not get autotransplant versus those that did. And in aggregate, they showed no difference in five-year overall survival. However, if they looked at those that had early relapse and had a transplant within one year of that early relapse, they showed a five-year overall survival of 73% versus 60%, as shown graphically here on the right. This would suggest, with caveats of retrospective uh, analyses, uh, that transplant early after uh, progression within two years may be beneficial uh, versus not. The German low-grade lymphoma study group also looked at their data regarding autotransplant for early relapse follicular lymphoma. They looked at all of their relapsed follicular lymphoma, but most of them, or 70%, had this POD24 phenotype. They looked at 162 patients. They excluded those that had early failure. And in aggregate, shown in the uh, first figure here, there was an improvement in progression-free survival for those that had uh, uh, autotransplant versus not. And important to note here that they excluded patients that had chemo-resistant disease. So you're comparing in the blue curve, chemosensitive with no transplant versus in green, chemosensitive with transplant. So there was an improvement in progression-free survival, not a statistically significant improvement in overall survival. They then went on and looked specifically at those that had early relapse, progression of disease within 24 months. And I want you to focus in the left here on the green and the blue curve. So on the left, the POD24 with autotransplant had a statistically significant improvement uh, in progression-free survival as compared to those who did not, despite having chemosensitive disease. These had no cytoreduction failure. Well, maybe that's not a surprise, um, but what they also were able to show is that in the same comparison, looking at overall survival, if you had early progression and you had chemosensitive disease, you had improved overall survival with transplant versus no transplant. Now, this was not a randomized comparison. There may, may have been other features that were different between these patients in terms of their suitability for transplant. Um, and likewise, transplant may have treated occult transformation uh, that was not obvious by biopsy. Nevertheless, these are provocative data that suggest for those with chemosensitive early relapse, autotransplant may be beneficial uh, versus not. So when will we consider autologous stem cell transplantation? Typically in the second or third line, but not beyond. Those that have early progression of disease at 24 months, patients do need to have chemo-responsive disease. And ideally, these would be the ones with the best outcome would be the ones with a low FLIPI score of zero to two. Okay, let's now turn to uh, PD-1, PD-L1 inhibition and follicular lymphoma. Are there any data uh, with this class of drugs? Well, we do know that follicular lymphoma is characterized by co a complex microenvironment. There are tumor infiltrating CD positive, CD8 positive T cells, there are follicular regulatory cells, lymphoma associated macrophages and mast cells, and a variety of other follicular helper cells, dendritic cells, and reticular cells, which all, all likely contribute uh, to the uh, tumorigenic milieu within the lymph node. So, what are the clinical data? 
Well, there were some uh, early encouraging data in a phase one fashion suggesting uh, in the left-hand panel here uh, that an overall response rate up to 40% was observed. However, this is a very small study. And as we know, uh, many times the initial early data, particularly from phase one trials, uh, don't always translate into larger uh, phase two studies where the accrual is not gated uh, and the eligibility may be more representative. Uh, on the right-hand panel, this is the Checkmate 140 trial. Uh, this was a study by Armand and colleagues looking at 92 follicular lymphoma patients. And disappointingly, they only saw an overall response rate of 4%. Uh, the median progression-free survival was only 2.2 months. So this was a very disappointing study, um, and I think we have, still have a lot to uh, learn uh, regarding PD-1 and PD-L1 and follicular lymphoma. So there are other ongoing studies, particularly in combination with other agents. However, of course, if the combined agent is effective uh, in and of itself, it's often challenging to separate the activity of the combined agent from the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibition. Uh, we have a study at our center looking at PD-1 inhibition uh, with pembrolizumab as the initial therapy for follicular lymphoma with the hypothesis that these patients are immunologically replete uh, and have not been treated with multiple cycles of chemotherapy. So that style study is ongoing and we hope to see uh, what the activity might be in that setting. So key takeaways from this uh, presentation include elevated LDH of baseline, a positive end-of-treatment PET scan and a high FLEX score is associated with early progressive disease and follicular lymphoma. Retrospective analyses suggest that responses to idelisib may be associated with immune-mediated adverse events in follicular lymphoma. However, more prospective data uh, is needed uh, to answer this question fully. Autotransplant can be considered in chemosensitive second or third line uh, patients with follicular lymphoma or in those with POD24 in the second CR or PR. Unfortunately, single-agent PD-1 therapy appears to have limited activity in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, and other studies uh, are ongoing with combinations or using it as part of initial therapy. So let's just wrap up here looking a little bit at some of the guidelines for, uh, from the, derived from the NCCN regarding second-line and subsequent therapy for follicular lymphoma. These include bendamustine plus obinutuzumab or rituximab. Uh, for those who have not had an anthracycline, one may consider uh, CHOP plus obinutuzumab or rituximab, CVP similarly, or lenalidomide, rituximab as second-line therapy. Other regimens include ibrutimumab, texatan, uh, lenalidomide, particularly if patients can't tolerate anti-CD20 or don't express CD20. Uh, lenalidomide obinutuzumab has been published in a single-arm study obinutuzumab as a single agent, and then of course the PI3 kinase inhibitors, which are approved for after two prior therapies, including copanlisib, duvelisib, and idelisib. Uh, rituximab is, can also be used for relapse disease, and recently tazometostat has also been approved. This is approved for those with EZH2 mutation positive relapsed refractory disease after two prior lines of therapies, or for EZH2 wild type relapsed refractory disease in patients who have no satisfactory alternative treatment options. So with that, uh, I thank you for your attention and I thank you very much for participating in this activity. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. 
This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from Celgene Corporation, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Insight Corporation, and Veristem Oncology. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.